Hey, Rick Picotta, Greg Henry, Mel Herbert, on Valentine's Day, February 14th, which means we're quite late for the February issue, but... I did call my wife this morning and wished her a happy Valentine's Day from Southern California, and of course, she's back in Michigan. She hates me for it. Oh, well, she hates you anyway, so what's the difference? You <laughs> yeah, know? Well, it doesn't make much difference. And Rick has it. agreed to be my Valentine, so we're here together. Well, I know you're all out there. You've all recovered, because by the time you get that it isn't Valentine's Day, but I know that you went to the supermarket, tried to get some flowers, and flowers are all dead and gone, and you're trying to get a card. They're $8 from Hallmark for a 10-cent card. We tried to go out to dinner last night. Every restaurant was full. Right, Unbelievable. Right. Valentine's Day is on a Monday, and so people tried to do it on Sunday night. Yeah. We could not get anywhere. Yeah, awful. We, although we did something cool. We, we did went something to cool. Whole Foods. Whole paycheck? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we bought stuff and brought it home. Yep, and it was good. We had a great I time. I did the same thing, actually. We just got a couple of us together, and we ate steak. We cooked the meat, and it was good. Oh, Ricky cooked yeah. his steak. I want you to clear something up. Yes. I've been to Australia now eight times to teach. I know virtually a 100 Australians in this country. I've never heard one actually say, put shrimp on the Barbie. Is no. this some sort of thing that was made up by the Tourist Bureau? Paul Hogan did it on the TV about mm-hmm. 20 years ago and made it incredibly mm-hmm. famous. Right. Yep. But no, we don't put shrimp on the Barbie. Yep. Well, at least though I don't. Yeah, very good. All right, should we get started, gentlemen? We probably should. You know, because- we have a whole bunch of stuff that we want to cover. I think we'll cover, try to do some of it, and whatever we don't get done this month, we'll do next month. Okay? Yeah, but I will say this. We've had a great outflowing of passion and emotion and ideas from our listenership. People keep writing, and you know what? We're going to keep answering your questions. Well, we do have a few letters. We're going to start off with them, and then we'll move on to something else. So, Mel, I think you have the first one. All right. I've got a letter here from Robert Hutton, who writes that a detective got bent out of shape when he came to retrieve a bullet removed by one of his young partners. Apparently, he was upset because the bullet was not sent to pathology where it could be retrieved for forensic evaluation. So the broader concern here relates to the chain of evidence regarding bloody clothes and bloody body parts and knives and things that are sticking out of people. You know, the detective has a certain validity in his point. At my hospital, the hospitals I've worked at, anything removed, any subsequent part of violence, had to be sent to pathology for identification. And I think that this is kind of odd that they did not send a bullet for at least proper identification at the pathology department. There has to be a line drawn here. This is like a police kind of case. But do you have to send over a foreign body that is pulled out of somebody? We had to if it was a crime or associated with a crime. Well, yeah, I'm I'm suggesting that somebody is not a crime. When somebody steps on a nail, do you have to take that nail over there and show it? No, but very few people shoot you with a nail gun. If it's an actual bullet, Rick, the chances it's going to be a police no, we're trying to make a distinction between crime and no crime. Right. And I think that crime is the distinction. You know, I should tell you one thing. Mel mentioned that uh, this fellow wrote this stuff. Actually, I have condensed all of this stuff because they write pages and pages. Yes. Let's get to the meat here again. You know, <laughs> yes, come on. Yes, yes, yes. All right. John McLaughlin. Give me how do you think you pronounce this gentleman's McLaughlin. name? McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Okay. He wanted to make an analogy between C-spine x-rays and PEs. And, you know, we've wrestled with this C-spine business. So he says C-spines, we have the nexus rules or the Canadian rules, and basically we'll stratify them into no risk, 
and everything thereof. And if it's a low risk, according to these rules, you don't have to x-ray anybody, right? Isn't Nobody. That correct? Don't okay. shoot any x-rays. So his concern is, well, if there is a low risk case, therefore, you need to image them. And what imaging would you do, given the fact is that C-spines are kind of a big deal and you don't want to miss a fracture? So he said, is it nothing or CT? Now, I think that some people, maybe like Dr. Hoffman would say, no way, no way. The Nexus trial was done with plain films, and we think we did pretty well, although other people, when they interpret their data, think that there was a fair number of misses. And certainly subsequent to that, there have been a ton of papers that talk about plain films versus CT, clearly showing that CT is the superior study. Let me just say this, that we'd like to have an intermediate group of people. I think there is. That's the worried well who, if they had a brain in their head, you would not be doing any study at all, but they want something. Okay, I'll go with that. But if I've got grandma who's fallen out of bed and is now holding her head to the side and it hurts them to move her, I'm going to shoot a spiral CT on that case. And here are the reasons why. On grandma, it ain't going to hurt her. She's not going to get a cancer 30 years down the road because she's going to be dead. Number two, there's less movement. There's less time. That study was done. In fact, we, we had that in the database, the EMA database, the study that showed if you do a spiral CT, it takes a third the amount of tech time as actually positioning them for the five films. And if you go on a time-is-money basis, I think you actually get a better picture, pick up more fractures, use less tech time with a spiral CT. You know, we talk about this thing all the time, and probably we're making people sick of this, but I've got a question for you. If radiation is not an issue, if it's been overstated, if uh, doing these things really doesn't hurt people as much as we say it does, do you think we should just use CT? Is it all about radiation? Did you see the thing on TV last night? Yes. There was a news clip about all of this radiation kind of thing. And then they got this doc up there who tried to make the case that this has been substantially overstated. The likelihood of cancer projections are not very well founded. And he was just making the opposite case, which I think is fair. You just can't keep on saying uh, it's danger, danger, danger. All right. I want to ask this group a question. You've got a 16-year-old who's in high school gymnastics. They go off the pommel horse down on their head. They now have pain in their neck, although they're moving their fingers and toes. Which study do you want done on that kid at the hospital emergency room? Mel. If that's my son, I can tell you, although I'm afraid of radiation, I do think it's been overstated, and I certainly i will deal with the cancer in 40 years. I don't want him to be a paraplegic, quadriplegic now. So, yes, a high-risk injury in a young, healthy person like that, I would want the CT. Now, if it's a whiplash injury in a car accident, which is most of the ones we see, where I know there's not a fracture, but they fail nexus, and then I feel, well, I have to image them, then I want to use something low dose that I don't really care what the result is. (laughs) Exactly. That's the exact point. Because when the pretest probability is damn near zero, it doesn't matter which test you use. You realize in Jerry's study, and hats off and a tip of the hat to Jerry, they looked at 39,500 people in this to come up with the number of fractures that they did. It is a small number of people. But The bottom line of that is it's not zero. And if you looked at it, it was kind of predictable who was going to have a positive result. Well, have you ever seen anybody who had a kind of a whiplash injury who had any kind of serious pathology? Never. You're expecting falls and uh, football injury and something like that. And a billion people with 
fractures and extension injuries have had plain x-rays over the decades. And I, honestly, I can't remember anything. Well, but the point is, then they need nothing. I think they really do fall into two groups. Those who you have a serious concern about, and then there's that whole other group that what you're shooting is the sociology-driven Well, the point uh, I was trying to make is the vast majority of the people who come in with neck injuries are of the whiplash variety rather than I fell off a ladder. Then do nothing. Well, I think that's why, from my mind, because I was there when they developed it and there when they did it at UCLA, that... Nexus was really developed for exactly the whiplash injury patient. I know that it's going to be negative. I want to clear you very quickly clinically, although it expanded out to everybody. I And my argument still holds doing five views of the neck does not clear anybody quickly, and quickly. you'll back up your department forever on people who you know are negative and are going to get a $1,200 bill for plain films of the neck. I'm sure everybody's sick of this. Yeah. I don't think we need to go much further on Dr. Come on, help me with this guy's name. McLaughlin. 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 Is that a Scottish name? Yes, I believe Scottish it is. Right. Well, anyway, he, the other point he made is, geez, it would be nice if we could have something in the C-spine range analogous to the PE range, where you risk statify them. That's very good, low risk. Okay, now you have a nice cheap test to do, the D-dimer, and if it's a good D-dimer, it comes back negative, you're done without having to go down this expensive path that... Unfortunately, the neck seems to be all or nothing now. Well, it sounds to me like he's figured out his way to fame. Do the studies, John, and we'll be happy to comment on the study. Here's a letter the writer wishes to be anonymous, but the bottom line in this is that they have a series of general hospitals. The hospitals are staffed by the same ER group. They used to have psychiatric evaluation, but now they don't. So everybody sends their psych cases to this third hospital after they've been medically cleared at the first hospital. When they get to the third hospital, they have a psychiatric they have a nurse who's had psychiatric training who evaluates the patient and then calls a psychiatrist, makes a disposition, and out they go. And the doctor at the third hospital says, should I be seeing this person? And there is some issue here about whether the person is registered or not. I think he was implying the patient wasn't even registered in the emergency department because they had received a medical screening exam at another facility. So I think that this is pretty obvious here but greg what do you think well first of all everybody needs to be registered in the emergency department secondly if they've been sent from another hospital i don't know where there's an exemption in the amtala law about this i think they ought to label a room in the hospital something different the psych evaluation room or whatever it is and not call it the emergency department Thirdly, if that patient, if there's any question that there's any medical issue, they've got to be brought back through the emergency medicine system. Because if you don't think a patient can be moved from one hospital to the other and now have signs of their subdural or whatever it is, that's a mistake. And lastly, remember what's going on here is a psych nurse or a psych social worker is presenting it to a psychiatrist on the end of the phone. This is a disaster waiting to happen. Here's what I think that the emergency docs ought to do. Get a note or attachment in their contract, something they can give to their insurance carrier, which says, we are not responsible for these patients. We are not expected to see them unless asked to do so. Because I'm telling you, if I was a plaintiff's counsel, I would involve the emergency physicians in a nanosecond in these cases. Now, can you take this too far? What about all those patients that come in that are wheeled through the emergency department? They're being directly admitted to medicine. Is that analogous? to that in any way and the emergency physician sees this person's about to die and like 
turns away and like it's not my patient. Is it a different situation? I think that's very different. And if they've been sent to be admitted inpatient, and unless someone asks you to get involved, I don't think that that's a problem. I at least have not seen that as a problem. However, it's like everything else. The emergency room is the bottom of the societal birdcage. If coming through, somebody wants you to take a look, then write it up. And here's the biggest mistake you can make, looking and not documenting it somewhere. That is, if you've been asked to look at a patient, at least take the time to record the fact that you looked at that patient, thought they were okay to go upstairs, whatever's going to be. Don't have a big hole there where you can't defend yourself at some point in time if there's a problem. Well, I find this somewhat analogous, somewhat, to a situation that many, many hospitals do, if not most, which I find very disconcerting. So this is a person who comes in and goes to the window and gives them some complaint about, I think I have a kidney infection. And there's been some policy that says, okay, well, you're pregnant. You now go down to the OB department and where they'll evaluate you. And they have some OB nurses who check out the status of the uterus and see if there's false contractions and to that effect. And then they'll call some doctor and they'll make some kind of decisions and out they go. And I never really felt comfortable with that because the doctor never saw them. We have no idea whether they did have a urinary tract or not. And they're not nurse practitioners. They're just OB nurses. And that seems to be so inconsistent with what everybody else is doing for every other person who comes in. Rick, I know it happens everywhere. All I can tell you is in my 36 years or 38 years of seeing these cases, I have never seen that to be a case because almost always the OB people have it set up where they get a urine sample. All these results get called to the OB doc. I just haven't seen it as a problem. I've also seen it, by the way, where the OB nurses will say, I don't think this is related to the pregnancy. I'm sending them back down to the emergency room, and I think they ought to have a liberal policy about doing that up on the OB floor, and I'm happy to see them back. Not a problem. David Esler of Vancouver has a number of suggestions for Risk Management Monthly, and I think some of these are actually outstanding ideas that we should do. First of all, he says he wants more input from risk management folks in other countries. I'm not sure how many international subscribers listening to a American program about but risk management. But do they have risk management issues in other countries? You know, Australia, when I left, when I was just a boy, and I left in 91, they're basically lawyers suing didn't occur. But now I guess it's an epidemic, and the lawsuit rate in Sydney is higher than in California and other parts of the U.S. So yeah, but you don't sue for money. You sue for, like, kangaroo we suit the sheep. So I think yeah, they yeah, might be interested, yeah. but it's probably very... We are specific. the leaders in the world. <laughs> Nobody does suits like we <laughs> yeah, do, Yeah, baby. that's exactly right. He's also interested in how Georgia and Texas were able to change their negligence standards. I think that's very interesting. I can comment on that. Let's do it right now. One thing for sure is it wasn't going to be emergency medicine by itself. The reason Texas and Georgia were able to get a change in the standard that they use to associate with emergency care is all the other specialists went on board as well. And cardiology said, if we get called into the emergency department, we want some protection. The people who really went on board with this were the surgeons, the orthopods, those people who said, if you're calling me in for some kid on a motorcycle with no insurance, I intend to have some level of protection or and here's in Georgia, at least what they did said, or we're not coming in. So you know what? The legislature took this. It wasn't you and I as the emergency doc because they knew we were already hung by Amtala. They took all these specialists who were about to not come in. And then they said, you know what? We're going to fix this. So hats off to Georgia and Texas. But it wasn't emergency medicine. It was all the docs together 
that brought pressure on the legislature. David's from Vancouver. We were just there a few days ago for our Whistler course. And one of the doctors at the course, John Hughes, who's from Georgia, mentioned that their state was, I didn't know that their state had the same kind of lenient or more strict, pardon me, uh, right. rules of evidence. I do remember reading that whoever licenses physicians in Texas was so behind because there was this big flood of doctors who went to Texas. Doctors like to practice in places where they can practice without fear of lawsuits. And it really gets me angry when I hear people who will remain nameless saying, this is not a big deal, get over it. Whether it's a big deal or not, physicians worry about this all the time. And every time some state comes along and says, we're going to protect you, that state gets a whole bunch of docs. Yeah, it really does. And there are only four things that doctors who are practicing really care about. The money, surprise, surprise, their liability, their schedule, lifestyle, and the quality of the colleagues and the situation they're in. Those are the four. Whenever you can address one of those four, you've got their undivided attention. Now, we also wants to do more interviews with attorneys, which I think is good. I think we like to have interviews with attorneys because they think differently than us. And they're a strange species. And the more we can talk to them and understand them, the better. But there's a reason we don't. And that's because here in the studio, if, if we bring them in, they're so slimy, they leave a ring around the place. <laughs> so we have to be very, very careful. We've done some nice attorneys. I would love to get a plaintiff's attorney. If anybody out there can help us find a plaintiff's attorney, I think that they would be willing to talk to us, don't you think? Yeah, but they're willing to give you their line of crap. It's in the actual cases when you see what they actually do. And I understand I may be a little sensitive here, but I've been to court three times in the last two weeks, and you get to hear, you're right, different thinking on the parts of attorneys. Well, doctor, you could have done this or that. That's not how we think in medicine, and it's very strange. But I agree. I'm willing to have one on here and and be a good boy during the interview. (laughs) Here's the most important comment that he has. He suggests that we consider expanding our reviews beyond wines to movies, hamburgers, technology, Google versus Apple. (laughs) That's a great idea. I think he's losing it. (laughs) Yeah, I think he is too. (laughs) That's the wrong show. You need another show. (laughs) Yeah, right. The gong show. Yeah, right. And so I thought they were his major points, some good ideas there. Yeah, but thanks for writing. There's no question we'd love the letter, David. Sam Johnson writes, and this is a good one, I think. He's torn. He has a dilemma. He knows of a case, does some malpractice, where there was not quite a clean kill, but darn close. He knows the doctor. The doctor's a good doctor. He likes the doctor. He's wondering whether he should kind of get involved because the patient was seen in the morning, came back, and later it was dead the same day. And it sounds like whether there's smoke or fire, you know, at least you ought to take a look kind of thing. And so he says there, quote, unquote, am I the villain in this? That's not the quote that was funny. The quote was when he said, I'm not just a money-grubbing guy going after another doctor for the cash. My point of view is don't do it. Don't do it. You're not obligated to do it. Yes, there is some issues about do patients have a right to a fair look at their care? And I think the answer is yes. But if you know the doctor, like the doctor, and you're not obligated. The concept that we should start telling on each other, I think, is a very bad idea. But if you've got a colleague who consistently is a very nice guy and you go to the dinner parties with him, but he is killing patients left, right, and center, there are better places to get this solved than through the lawsuits. Right. Well, Sam has actually asked us, Am I a villain? And all I can say is, Sam, you ignorant slut. Obviously, you're in a dilemma for only one reason, and that is if you honestly believe that all four parts of negligence were breached, that is, the duty was breached, there was harm done, there's a proximate cause, all of those elements were met, 
the chances that this will ever go to court are very small. In my experience, real malpractice is almost never tried. It's settled. And I don't think you should feel bad about expressing an honest opinion. Here's what I'd be concerned about. If you actually know this, doctor, I would recuse myself. And the reason is, can you actually give an honest opinion with regard to that patient, the injured party, if there's someone you actually like? I almost always, when I'm going to do a case, I look and see whether I have a social or personal relationship with someone. And if I do, I refuse the case simply because I realize, as all humans, I'm prejudiced. I will tend to favor the doctor, and there's no question about that. So you can't help me out if I get into trouble? Rick, if you get into trouble, we're going to plead insanity, and it may be the best we can get for you. All right. Who wants to do Bruce Campbell? All right, I'll do Bruce Campbell. Okay. He's concerned about people who leave his department without being seen, and the joint and several liability of the emergency department and the physicians regarding these cases, he has suggested to his colleagues that, well, obviously, you'd like to know that somebody's about to leave right then and there to see if you can intervene. But they have been looking at some of the charts of people who have gone out, and they think that there is some nastiness there, that some of these cases could really have come back and bit them, and they'd like to address it. And so he is suggesting to his colleagues that they should review the charts either that day or the next day. And he says that some of them want no parts of reviewing the cases. They never saw the patient. They don't want to put any notes down or to that effect. So he's concerned about people who go home who they really don't have a good handle on that a certain subset of them are going to be potentially nasty cases. And we've seen some cases that made the press big case in Nevada, in Las Vegas, University Hospital. Some woman went home from the emergency department waiting room, was never seen, and delivered a baby shortly after going home. Nobody even knew she was pregnant, including her, apparently. And I believe that that case was settled where the hospital has to take responsibility for what goes on in the waiting room. But this physician contract group did not. Yeah, I think that if we look at all the cases, certainly that I've been involved with, which are leaving without being seen cases, principal element is this. Was there a policy? Everybody is seen by somebody. There's no such thing as left without being seen unless you're the invisible man. Somebody saw you. The question is, what would they do with that information? And the policy ought to be this. If there's concern on the part of the nurses, a physician is informed, and you at least get a chance to talk to that patient about staying. Let's do just a couple of these examples. If the nurse has written down patient lethargic, are you going to put that patient back in the waiting room? Patient having slurred speech, that one going to the waiting room? The nurses ought to have a list of people or people's symptoms that they will refuse to put back in the waiting room or refuse to let go unless they brought a doc out to talk to them. And I think that just a few of those would save a lot of these potential, I think he refers to them as alligator cases, which are laying in the swamp waiting to bite you in the butt. Well, sometimes you know that a person is about to leave, and you obviously you should intervene in those cases. The nurse says, Mr. So-and-so, he's been waiting two hours now, he's ready to leave, can you just talk to him? I think that that is a reasonable thing to do, but then there's this other subset where you just turn around and they're gone and... How about a telephone call to those folks? What do you think, Greg? Well, I think a telephone call, first of all, did they give you an honest number? Number two, if you don't get an answer on the telephone, what's your next obligation? 
at a certain point, what are you going to do on the phone that you couldn't have done there? See, I'm not one of these guys who thinks that down the road, six hours later, a doctor looking at a chart or eight hours later changes anything. I don't think there's any data that would show we can do anything. You either take care of it online at the time that it's happening or it's not going to be taken care of at all. Can you stratify by how sick the patient appeared, though? So if you've got somebody who you look at the chart and you go, oh, my gosh, this person left without being seen or barely seen, and they look really sick, I would think that you could stratify by saying a reasonable physician would call them, maybe even send them a telegram uh, for that person. The person who came in with a twisted ankle, I don't care. Bye-bye. Yeah, well, the bottom line is there, the reasonable physician. What makes you think it's the physician's responsibility when they presented to the hospital... They didn't present to you. No one comes to USC to see Mel Herbert. They come to USC. And I think that the hospital may have an obligation. The other thing is, if the nurses actually thought that they looked bad, if on reviewing the chart, the patient looks bad, well, they sure as hell look bad to the nurse who is seeing the patient, who making the note. What I'm saying is, the time to intervene is when the patient is still there. Because it's very dicey whether we can get a hold of people. See, a lot of those folks who leave don't have cell phones, don't have relatives, don't have sober friends, don't have these things. I think that that's dicey. The best thing you can do is intervene while they're there. This fellow is making the point that he thinks that the emergency physicians and the hospital are liable for what's going on in the waiting room. And based on the Las Vegas case, that was not the case. Now, are there other examples where that would be consistently viewed as not the responsibility of a contract physician group? Well, I've certainly seen cases where the physician was informed before the patient left and so I'm too busy to see him right now I will do something else and they were brought into the case Mm -hmm. I have not seen the case where the patient came in saw the nurse left and then the physician was also sued Mm -hmm. I think it's a long stretch to say that somebody's in the back busy seeing patients has to be clairvoyant and know what's going on in the waiting room if you're at a place like USC what do you get a thousand people a day in the waiting room Yeah, but there was a famous hospital here where something very bad happened in the waiting room and they got in lots of trouble. So it's been argued that the waiting room is part of your practice, that part of good emergency medicine care is to clear that waiting room, to check the waiting room. So are you saying that it really isn't? It's It's not until they walk through that magic door? It's not part of the physician's job. I mean, be honest, you're not doing rounds in the waiting room at USC. You never have. Rick, you didn't do it at your hospital. I didn't do it at my hospital, but I depended upon the agents and servants of the hospital, the nurses and techs, to find me if there was a problem. And I think once I'm notified, but I mean, if you're now suggesting that there's a new standard of care that we have to go out and check the waiting rooms, you know what? I think this is going to discourage people from becoming emergency docs. So I understand what you're saying now. So you're saying that there is a responsibility, but it's not your responsibility. It's the responsibility of the system, the nurses, the hospital to look after that area. You can't be expected to be running that part of the hospital as well, unless we staff it with a doc out there. I had the exact analogous case, and that was someone who came in, family originally brought the uh, kid in, he had a history of psych disease, he was a paranoid schizophrenic, he was now hearing voices again, the nurses had him sit in the waiting room, uh, he ran out the front door uh, of the hospital and was hit by a bus. Now, the emergency physicians were initially named, but dropped. Why? Because no one could show that there was a duty. They were perfectly willing to see the patient. 
And the people who went down on this was the nurse who, knowing that he had history of danger to self or others, left him in the waiting room. And of course, the mother had gone to get a cup of coffee or something. It was the perfect storm that happened. But the emergency doctors were dropped from that case. Okay, you want to do two more quickies, and I think we will be caught up with all letters that we have that I know of. That you know of. All right, let's do it. Kevin Wanniger, Director of Primary Care Sports Medicine, the fellowship at St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, which I know well, being a Philadelphia boy, comments on our discussion about head injuries in sports, and he notes that he thinks we made some mistakes. It's hard to conceive of. I can't believe it. But this guy is a sports medicine doctor, and... He said our discussion regarding concussion was a little off. He said there's no evidence supporting the grading of concussions. And the two weeks we mentioned, obviously it wasn't me, it was probably you, Greg, in in the tape as a period for rest is not correct, but rather it should be totally symptom driven. And as such, estimates are hard to make about when you can return to playing. He basically is suggesting that each athlete should be followed by his primary care doctor and that through the use of serial histories and physicals, the decision is made. He's suggesting it doesn't need to be super sophisticated neurology kind of thing that the family doctors can do this he gave us a copy of the zurich guidelines which i'm sure you can find on the internet and he also points out that these are fluid and dynamic also if one of my friends would hear he would say a lot of this is best evidence speculation expert opinion there's not any randomized double blinds on this swag which is scientific wild ass guess and i think that it's precisely what it is but kevin is right if we intimated that there was a one-week or a two-week absolute. We were wrong on that, and we asked for a mea copa on this. Having looked at the Zurich guidelines, I think that here's the warning that I have. Unless you're a doc who does this seriously, don't do it at all. I'm sure there are plenty of family docs out there who don't know the Zurich guidelines. I bet there are plenty of people who probably shouldn't be seeing athletes who have been injured and need to go back. The problem is multifactorial. You have coaches who want to send their player back in. And I saw that plenty of times in high school games where somebody said, well, he had his bell rung, but I think he's okay now for the second half. Secondly, you've got to get somebody who actually follows them because kids lie. They want to get back into the game, and somebody has to really have a relationship so that they know what to do. But I think that the Zurich guidelines, which are quite good, are probably worth sitting down and reading. If you're going to be a high school athletic coach, if you're going to be the guy who's handling their health care needs, read that. Have something to go on, because what we're seeing now is long-term disabilities, discussions, even some of the professional athletes who are suing for long-term injuries, which were not diagnosed at that time. Well, you know, most of these doctors at these high school football games, they're not being compensated. They're just well-intended kind of guys who want to help out kind of thing. And whether, in fact, they are up on this literature, it suggested that if you have any ability to influence these people, they ought to read up a little bit on this stuff. Exactly. I mean, I think that volunteerism is a great thing, but no good deed ever goes unpunished. And if this is a well that you ought to drink deeply of or not at all, and I think that it's inappropriate for the pediatrician or the dermatologist to come out of the stands, take a look at a kid and say, yeah, he's ready to go back in. Unless you do this on a regular basis, don't do it. And I think you're assuming things, probably not covered, by the way, by your malpractice. If you're an emergency doc and you've decided to become a team doctor, I promise you 
you need another level of insurance. I have never seen the emergency medicine policy, which covers high school athletic doctor job. Never saw it in my entire life. Do I know of anybody who's been sued on that? Yes, I do. And their insurance policy did not cover it. Lastly, Jim Jolly, a nurse practitioner. Listen, that is Greg. He actually thinks that your thrust on exam is really important, history is really important, testing is a little less so. He thinks that you're right on, which is, you know, just a... <laughs> Can he talk to my wife? Because uh, <laughs> that would be helpful. I'd be fuddled. But yeah. his question is here, what if I really do rely on physical exam and become a kind of a testing nihilist and there's a bad outcome? And they basically said, doctor, your exam, we challenge it. This person apparently did have appendicitis, and apparently you dismissed it through your exam. So he's suggesting then it becomes my word versus your word. Well, the other part of that is one thing you can't say is if I say the patient has rebound and guarding, how can an expert witness at any time say they didn't have rebound and guarding? After all, I'm the person on the scene. Now, they can say, you waited too long to call a surgeon. Maybe they should have been seen in four hours, not eight hours. But if I say rebound guarding consistent with peritonitis, come on. Well, he's taking the other point of view. I didn't find anything bad, and I sent them home. And they came back four hours later, and the doctors found all of these pathologic findings in the abdomen. And basically, it's hardly unlikely that they were there four hours ago. So it's a story. Well, again, you can say that about anything, any test, anything we do. I don't care whether it's the abdomen or the chest. If I say chest clear, no wheezes, rowels, or ronchi, I don't know how an expert in five years when the case is being tried can say, oh, no, they were there. Come on. At a certain point in time, we have to be able to make clinical decisions. And we are the country, by the way, that has decided that clinical exam doesn't matter. If you're in England today and you're sending a 16-year-old boy to the operating room for an appendix, nobody wants to know what the CT scan is. It's clinical. In fact, they don't even care what a chest x-ray shows. They don't care what a white count is. They just want to know when they're going to be able to do the case. And I think that's the way we've got to get back to logical clear thinking on these issues. But don't the lawyers try that? And I've had a number of these. You saw somebody, they didn't look like they had appendicitis, you did a pretty good chart, you sent them home, they come back the next day, somebody scans them, they got a perforated appendicitis. Okay. Aren't the lawyers going to say, well, you screwed up and I've got the evidence you screwed up because here's the CT scanner 12 hours later that shows that there was something bad. I don't care what your chart says, you're self-serving in your chart, you're just stupid and you need to be sued. Well, th then you'd have to assume that you're self-serving before you know what the outcome of the case is and that doesn't really fly with juries. The question is, if all disease changes with time, what did you see at yet your moment in time, and was it reasonable? If you tell them, nah, this is just gastroenteritis, you'll be better, that's wrong. If you say, don't know, I want you back here in eight hours to refill the belly, that's what I want done now with my grandchildren. I want some intelligence on this, because you're right, shooting x-rays is different at age 50 than it is at age 5, and we probably need to start talking about this. I've had to go and defend doctors on just these cases. Never lost a case, because we can talk about what is legitimate decision-making. By the way, just as an aside, we do win most cases. I mean, it's a pain in the ass, and it costs a lot of money. But in my career of going to court, most of the time, we do just fine, and we should remember that that we fight it out, and the juries are not as dumb as sometimes put forward. And, you know, they like the idea that a doctor would use some judgment. 
and not just make them glow in the dark. I'm really happy, by the way, with all of these things that appear in the lay press about the effects of x-ray, because at least it now allows me to carry on an intelligent conversation with families about the fact that there may be a downside risk here. Although, actually, the literature, I think, is extraordinarily compelling that the first test that should be done in these kids, if the test is going to be done, would be an ultrasound. And Israeli papers are really, really strong about how good ultrasound is. Maybe 90%, CT 95%. We're talking about a 5% difference. We just did a paper in the abstracts, which I thought was compelling. It basically showed that when you had an ultrasound first, followed by a CT, if it was equivocal, the ratio of ultrasounds to CT in the whole study was 6 to 1. Six ultrasounds for every one CT in the kids' group. Yeah. It was 24 ultrasounds to one CT. Well, I think that's absolutely right, but not every kid with nausea and vomiting needs to have an ultrasound to their belly. All I'm talking about is jumping to CTs. That that makes no sense. And I don't really care what your radiologists say. You need to order the ultrasound. Our radiologists, by the way, couldn't agree with you more, Rick. And at least in the Ann Arbor area, what we do with, let's say, a seven-year-old who's got that pain, doesn't matter which hospital at. We send them over to the university where there's a peds ultrasound guy who's excellent, and we will let him do the study. But that's one out of 10 kids I see or one out of 15. Most of them go home. I'm not talking about the others. I'm just talking about when you get the imaging, what should be the first. And I couldn't agree with you more that I think that literature is very clear now. And But in all fairness, not every location has somebody excellent. We don't want excellent. We want them to learn to become excellent by ordering these things. Yes. Okay. Can I take us on a slight tangent then because it brings up a letter that I got and I forgot to share it with you guys. And that was the person who listened to the Risk Management Monthly said it's all very well for you guys to talk about being test nihilists and not getting tests because you're Greg Henry. And if you miss something... And don't you forget it, by the way. Yeah. If you miss something or Jerry misses something or Rick misses something, you are such big names that it's very unlikely that a lawyer is going to go after you. But me, Joe Schmuck, you know, I have no reputation, so they're going to go after me. Do you think that it's a legitimate argument that some people, the talking heads in emergency medicine who are so famous, are less likely to get sued, so therefore they can do whatever the hell they like versus Joe Schmuck? I've heard that a few times now. There are at least... Twice in my life, I've had another name, the defendant physician, Greg Henry. So believe me, they don't care. By the way, you know, we're only famous with each other. You think the average patient off the street or the average cares who we are or what our CVs look like? They don't care. What they know is they're unhappy with the outcome and they'd like to translate it into money. So I think that being a name in the academic world or in the practice world does not relate well to being protected from outside attack. I think their point was that once it gets to the step of have other experts look at this, if they see Peter Rosen's name on there, then there's not many experts in the country who go, that's Peter Rosen. I'm not taking this to court against the guy that wrote the textbook. It's not going to happen. You would, but most people would. And I'm in his textbook. <laughs> so I didn't know if that is a legitimate thing. I, I think know, it's Rick. used as an excuse to say, well, that's why I do tests, because I'm nobody. What do you think, Rick? I think there's double standard, but I don't think it's black and white. I think if there's a case in which you really screw it up, and there's big dollars available, I think they're going to go after you. I do think that when I see a case and if the person's well-known, it's one of those things where, mm, because you know it's going to be tougher. I think you just know that. 
Yeah, I think you do too. On the other hand, you may be able to find experts. You realize at a certain level of the business, we have all the same problems as every other human interaction. Jealousy, fear, hatred. I never liked him anyway sort of thing. You can find an expert who will come after any of us sitting at this table just for the amusement. In fact, they may come just so they can prove they're the fastest gun in the West and the toughest guy around, and I'll take him down, no problem. I want to get Wyatt Earp. You know. Yeah, exactly. This is the Wyatt Earp syndrome. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. I really do. But uh, if it's bad enough, they're going to go after you. Frankly, you know, I think we need to call a spade a spade. We're not testing nihilists. I don't think that we really are. I think that we try to get them when they're indicated. You might think you're a testing nihilist. But I wouldn't characterize myself like that. Uh, no, I don't think I'm a nihilist, but what I am is if you actually looked, and we've done this, at the number of x-rays and number of lab tests and things like that, I'm about a fifth as many as some of my partners. There's no question about it, but I have no difference in people who came back the next day, that sort of thing. I just think as a culture, we've replaced intelligent thinking with checking a box, and I don't see that as a good thing. Should we move on? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, Mel, I think you're up with a, a little bit of just a follow-up. We talked a little bit about routine dropping of co-pays or deductibles and that that could be nasty. Well, John Uphold, who's a friend of mine who owns a building company out here, sent me the official government statement about this. Right. And, and Michael Frank also weighed in on this. And thanks, Mike, has talked about this as well. So go ahead. Let's do this. All right. So here it is. John Uphold of Physician's Choice sent us this for a letter. Here's the bottom line. And it's in quotes. Routine waiver of deductibles and co-payments by charge-based providers, practitioners, or suppliers is unlawful because it results in, one, false claims, two, violation of the anti-kickback statute, and three, excessive utilization of items and services paid for by Medicare. We get to pick one of the above, or uh, can it be all of <laughs> no, the above? No, the government gets to pick <laughs> yeah, which one's the problem. or all of the above. <laughs> yeah. So he goes further and says, look, more specifically, routine waiver of co-pays and deductibles is misstating the actual charges. So if, for example, you've got a charge that's $100, and the provider routinely accepts 80 bucks then the charge is not 100 bucks, but it's 80 bucks, and billing the government for $100 is considered a false claim. Is this correct? Sounds bad. Well, there is an operative word here, and that is the routine. That's not the exceptional case. And I think we've had that discussion multiple times. Can we, in the exceptional case, knock down the copay? And this is an important concept, though, is the term routine versus occasional. Because even when you sign contracts with non-Medicare providers, you agree to collect the copay. Because basically, if there's no copay, there's no disincentive for them to come, uh, consumption will go up, etc. But the ones we're always afraid of is Medicare, the feds, because they can go after the old money, they can find you, they can take you out of the Medicare program at the hospital. Their consequences of dealing with them is a magnitude over Blue Cross. Yeah, they got guys with badges and guns and can send you to jail. <laughs> I mean, they're serious. There's this thing called the anti-kickback statute, which makes it illegal to offer, pay, solicit, or receive anything of value as an inducement to generate business. And if you say, I won't charge you for your copay, you're trying to generate business by that because there's no disincentive to go to you. That's considered bad, too. So we're not allowed to solicit anymore? <laughs> not where it's going to cost the government money. Oh, okay. I'll remember that. And uh, when can you drop the copay? There's a debate about this, but clearly the feds, even the feds, 
had to back away on this issue, and that is when you actually look at the financial condition of the patient, and it is such a huge hardship that they may have not sought care had they known that the copay was going to be enforced. I think in that case, if you make a special exception, you're allowed to drop a copay. It's actually written in quotes here, and let me state it for you. One important exception to the prohibition against wavering of copays and deductibles is that providers, practitioners, or suppliers may forgive the copayment in consideration of a particular patient's financial hardship. This hardship exception, however, must not be used routinely. It should be used occasionally to address the specific financial needs of a particular patient, except in such cases of a good faith effort to collect deductibles and co-pays must be made. So that's exactly what you said. You understand what they've done is they've got all wiggle words. After all, what is routinely? What is occasional? What if it's one out of every 10 patients or 15? Is that occasional? Because if it's systematic, then even if it's not frequent, it is not just an occasional event. Well, I believe most ER billing companies are not going to allow you to do this because they view that they're going to get themselves in trouble. Exactly. And the potential penalties here, we have to be very clear, they are bad. They are criminal fines, civil damages. You lose your license. You have your willy chopped off. You don't screw with those people lightly. The penalties are so bad, somebody was actually forced to watch every rerun of the Kardashians take Miami. This is getting ugly out there. Yeah, it's a cruel and excessive punishment. That's probably, that may be excessive punishment, right? Exactly. Okay, boys and girls, let's pick up on a new topic. Evidentiary blood alcohol draws by emergency nurses. This was the title of an article in the July 2010 issue of the Journal of Emergency Nursing, and I thought it had some absolutely terrific points. The whole problem with this literature is that it is so state-specific. Well, Rick, it's totally state-specific, not just for the nurses, but for the docs as well. This happened to be in Gen, but yeah, it applies to the doctors as well if you're going to get involved. But I think despite the fact that this is very specific about California law, I do think that there are some themes in this which probably transition all of the states. The universal theme is know what your state or the state you're practicing in Required. Well, that's one of the recommendations of this paper is that your hospital has to have a policy that addresses the requirements of your state and that you need to follow the policy. Exactly. But beside that, they point out that a third of total traffic fatalities in 2008 were due to alcohol impaired drivers. And everybody who's looked at that number says it's underreported. The number ought to be 50%, and this is why. If you're under a .08 they say then it's not alcohol related. But the truth is there are certain people at 0.06 and 0.05 who are technically not intoxicated, who may be on another medication which wasn't measured, and they're aged, or they're other things, or they're 110-pound, 17-year-old girl to whom that particular amount of alcohol can be detrimental. So I think that the 32% number is an understatement, and so let's just say alcohol is a big factor in getting killed on the road. Here's a point. It's not the job of the healthcare worker to determine the guilt or innocence of these drivers nor to enforce drunk driving laws. You're not the social police. That's exactly right. We can help, however, by cooperating with a legally conducted DUI investigation. It's fair to say this. We are, by virtue of our position, an agent of the state. When it comes to reporting child abuse, elderly abuse, crimes of violence, you are an agent of the state. Well, not only that, may have a 
damn, this guy's drunk. Look what he did. He hurt these other people. This person needs to be taken off the streets. I want to get this done. I believe that as much as anyone, but the way to do it is to follow the rules. Right. Well, I'm talking about the (laughs) emotional aspect of this is the third DUI of this person, and it's very difficult to start to be dispassionate and say, I'm going to be the doc. I have your best interest at heart. When look what you just did. Damn it. Yep. No question. So they point out that a survey was done in California asking 178 nurses their concerns regarding the drawing of evidentiary blood alcohols. Here's they had four concerns. One of them was the threat of being charged with assault and battery if the patient has refused the draw or has not specifically given consent. That's number one. Number two, fear for their own personal safety. The person might strike out, hit them, that kind of thing. Number three, concerns for liability because specific hospital policy or department management prohibits nurses from drawing evidentiary blood alcohols. You've seen these cases where the cops arrest a nurse or a doctor because they will not draw blood alcohol. Yes, it has happened. Yes, it <laughs> you, has. And we'll talk a little bit about that. The fourth is wishing to avoid subpoena because you don't want to testify in court and take three days off of your life. Sorry. You knew the job was dangerous when you took it, Fred or Sally. And the reason that this is a tough job is we do have to interact. No doctors interacts with the court system as much as emergency personnel, doctors and nurses. They make the point that if you do certain documentation, the likelihood of you being called is very small. Correct. And you just need to know what that is. Here is the law that basically allows the cops to arrest you if you will not do a blood alcohol. In California, it's Penal Code 148-A, states that any person willfully resisting, delaying, or obstructing any peace officer in the discharge of his or her duty can be fined or imprisoned. So that's what often Uskal You know, I asked you to draw the blood. You're not going to do it? Yeah, in all fairness, they're going to be very slow to do this. If you're the single doc in an emergency department in Keokuk, Iowa, you think they have the balls to take you out and leave the ER uncovered? You don't want to get to that point, however. Although I remember seeing a picture of a doctor in a patrol car. Don't you remember that, Mel? Yeah. Wasn't that in California? Uh, Yep. Do you know the guy? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Actually, we just had one of these. A year ago, two years ago, you can imagine how Billy went off on this. It happened in our place. They threatened to literally drag off one of our docks, and it got very bad. And They didn't actually put them in the patrol car, but it was almost there. Well, here's a couple of points. First of all, when people sign general consents for care when they go into an emergency department, this is not the same thing as a consent for evidentiary blood alcohol. So you cannot say... You've already signed in, and that doesn't matter here. By the way, you've signed another consent, whether you realize it or not, and that is in the state of Michigan, you signed for your driver's license? Yes. Yes. You've actually said, and I consent to have my blood alcohol taken. Well, that's if true it's, in it's California. The, <laughs> the next point here is states that any person who drives a motor vehicle is deemed to have a given consent for alcohol testing if arrested under suspicion of drunk driving. More than that, I think most states are coming to this now, and at least in the state of Michigan, if you refuse to have your blood alcohol taken, that's an admission of guilt. And so you've now admitted to being to drunk driving without a number even being generated. Well, you know, one of the points was that people are afraid of being sued 
for civil or criminal prosecution because they assaulted them or batteried them or something like that. They came up with four things in this article that needs to happen, at least in California. First of all, the nurse that is doing this is a registered nurse or licensed vocational nurse. And I thought this kind of interesting because I believe that at least in our hospital, they were sending them over to the lab to have the lab tech. So maybe this is not exactly right, but lab tech isn't nurse or LVN. Right. It should be pointed out as we're discussing these four points that this is the California Vehicle Code, and this is specific protection for hospital personnel. Yeah. Right. That's what this is. Number two, the sample is drawn in a reasonable manner according to the accepted venipuncture practices. That's okay. Three, the sample is drawn without violence by the person administering the test. So there's going to be a careful distinction here coming up about the restraint of a patient and what you as a hospital worker healthcare worker can and cannot do. And lastly, the test was requested in writing by a police officer. Mm -hmm. So the next thing is these forced blood draws, these forced blood draws. They are sanctioned in the state of California and in most other places. This policy allows the restraint of an uncooperative patient for a blood draw. And I think that that's particularly true in cases where you're talking about felonies, manslaughter, big deal cases. Yes. And by the way, the law of California are permissive. They are not mandatory, which means the counties decide what's going to happen in each county. So although it is permitted in the state, there are counties which haven't approved this. I don't know whether San Francisco is different than L.A. and that sort of thing, but it is permissive, not mandatory legislation. Here's a very important point that I think is probably universally applicable throughout the United States of America. Nurses must have no part in physically restraining the patient in association with the draw, but can draw blood from the restrained patient and under these circumstances remain protected by at least a California civil and criminal penalty exclusion. Yeah, and I think that's easy in big hospitals, in small hospitals, where there's three nurses, one tech, and a doctor on duty. Do you think they weren't initially involved in the restraint of that patient? That's where this gets messy. So I guess what you need is a time interval there between the restraint and the drawing. And I understand why nurses are concerned. Does that person have AIDS? Do they have hepatitis C? If while you're trying to draw the blood and they jerk, do you get stuck on this? What can I say? They also point out that there is, however, not a mandatory requirement to draw evidentiary blood alcohol from uncooperative patients and that the California Attorney General at least has stated that medical personnel may refuse to take a blood sample if the subject refuses to consent to the procedure. So here's where you get into this dichotomy. Attorney General says you can refuse. Other parts of this says you can't refuse, that they can arrest you because you're obstructing justice. So can I say that here in California, you can go both ways. <laughs> who trumps? Like if it went to the Supreme Court, who wins? You're not me, Jeff. But I tell you, there is some grounds for you refusing, and there are grounds for them taking you in. So the last thing, I don't want to belittle this or belabor this either one, are things to do to limit the chances of going to court. Number one, note that the law enforcement officer requested the blood sample in writing and the nurse must include his or her name and badge number. Absolutely. It's not a state policeman said, it's trooper so-and-so, badge number so-and-so. I agree with that completely. Number two, document the patient's consent according to your own hospital policy. 
Three, indicate the non-alcohol solution used to prepare the skin, even though that is irrelevant. Well, the problem is the old test would pick up branch-chain alcohols, isopropyl alcohol. The new test does not pick up isopropyl alcohol. I have no idea why we include this anymore. Well, it's still there. This paper is relatively new. Number four, note the site of the venipuncture, preferably distal to any IVs or locks. Number five, use the evidentiary blood alcohol vacutainer provided by the investigating officer. And number six, specify the name and badge number of the observing officer who took possession of the evidence. This is about this chain of command kind of thing. So there may be chain of evidence. Two, yes, pardon me, two different policemen that you have to document here. Yep. So that's evidentiary blood alcohol, and I think it's probably the best you're going to get because of the state by state variances. I will say this, that the U.S. has been, although we're getting better, and I think groups like uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, things like that, have pushed it. We're not near where the Europeans are at this point in time. If you're over there, they do have a designated driver. Because you get pulled over in England or in Sweden, and you're drunk, you do go to jail. And it's amazing the number of people we have in the emergency department who've had their licenses suspended, They've had previous DUIs. They're out running around. This doesn't happen in other countries. Mel, what's it like in Australia? By American standards, they would be considered draconian. But there is these blood alcohol testing places everywhere, uh, breathalyzers everywhere, Saturday night. You can't drive 10 feet from a pub or a party and not get pulled over. And they take it very seriously. And if you look at the countries that have done that in the last 20 years, they have radically reduced the number of motor vehicle accidents related to alcohol. Radically. But here... In America, with for all, it would be considered absolutely draconian. But it works. If you want to have a state like that, it works. Should we go on? Please. I think we've done that to death. Look, we want to first of all thank people for doing the surveys. You know, we have to do these surveys for these kind of series for CME accreditation. And we get a lot of useful feedback there. And in fact, in this issue, we have included some of the things that you said you'd like us to cover. For example... One of the things you asked about is prisoners' rights. What are their rights, Rick? How should we treat these people? Just because you're a prisoner, does it mean I can do whatever I like to you? Do they no. have rights? <laughs> Absolutely they have rights. And the key is they have privileges, which are better than yours. The only people in the United States who have 100% guaranteed health care any moment of the day or night are those people who we have incarcerated. Although, actually, there are some workarounds in that. At least in California, they basically can bring somebody in in handcuffs, needing medical care, and there's this California statute that says if they're booked and released, that in fact, they have to pay for the medical care. Yes, yes. That's what we call skimming and shiving the system here. But they came in, they were arrested. Yes. They, they had the handcuffs on. Now, it can be assist of a citizen, and that's the way they do it in the state of Michigan is, and if they do not actually book them, take them away... Rick is correct. The bill for that does not go to the county. And for some reason, a lot of these people arrested don't seem to have Blue Cross. I don't understand. (laughs) I don't know know what that is either. But if you take cases from the local jail or the prison, pretty much you still have obligations to speak to that patient. This is not uncommon that someone we brought over from the Washtenaw County Jail who has a 19-year-old kid doing his time over there for fight or whatever it was, and now he's got right lower quadrant pain. I mean, you have the same obligations to discuss to him the need for surgery or non-surgery, re-seeing the patient. I don't think that your obligation to the patient themselves changes, 
because they are in custody. Well, can they refuse treatment for other injuries? You've got a cut, laceration, abrasion. Can they refuse? It's the same basis as any other patient. We've talked about this. You can refuse care under Schollendorf. Remember the famous Cardozo doctrine. Those of adult years and sound mind may determine their own health care. And if they decide that they don't want that laceration or abrasion cleaned out, they don't want this or that, and they're awake, alert, carrying on normal conversation, not intoxicated, etc., etc., they can determine their own health care. And I would be very careful on that line that you don't get into assault and battery questions. What about if they've got a big laceration, they're HIV positive, and they're flinging the blood all over the place, and cops say, look, can you sew this dude up? It's killing me here. We can't take this guy back to the jail like this. Probably in that case, you can make the reasonable argument that their mental status and behavior constitutes a danger to the health of others and do it. But if you're carrying out a conversation with somebody who's rational and says, you know, I really don't want this medicine or that medicine... I think you're on very thin ice forcing that down their throat. And this has gone to the Michigan Supreme Court on cases of people who have basically gone on hunger strikes and said, I'm not eating this or that, and that's it. And until they had changes in mental status, they could not force feed them. Want to pick up the next one? Yes. This one was about dealing with complaints, and I recall that in October we had an absolutely terrific discussion with Randy Pilgrim, who's the chief medical officer for the Schumacher Group, regarding complaints. And I would really advise you to go back to the October issue because you're a subscriber to this wonderful publication. You have access to all of the issues that we've done since the beginning of time, which is now somewhere around the fourth year. But in any case, let me just summarize a couple of the things that Randy said. He had this pneumonic called LAST, the last approach. Listen, apologize, solve, and thank, whereas what he reviewed for us, be careful regarding avoiding any of the copays in the process of trying to resolve the problem. That's my own two cents here from what we said earlier. So go back and take a listen. Randy, I have a great deal of respect for Randy's knowledge about emergency medicine. And when he gave this interview, he was just right on his game. Greg, do you have any things to say about this? Well, I think that Randy summarized it very nicely. And, you know, whenever you see Randy, um, he's always uh, perfectly uh, attired, looks great. I mean, Randy's what you want to be when you grow up. And you're never going to be that good, Rick, but I promise you. What he's really saying here is people want to be taken seriously when they have a complaint. Most of the complainers, if you actually spend some time, that's why the listen component is so strong here. They've spent their life going down to the Department of Motor Vehicles where nobody really wants to listen to anything which is said or done. Then they've dealt with every other big institution. If you actually give them five minutes to get their issue out on the table, that was the key in Randy's discussion. The writer of this suggestion says, I want to mitigate risks to his partners, the doctor, other doctors. Right. He wants to appease the complainer, and he wants to keep the hospital administration happy. I think it's pretty straightforward. Everybody wants to do that. Now, here he says this is the more difficult issue. When he is not comfortable with the care that his partners have rendered, and he's expected to comment on the quality of that care. Yeah, you should never be required to comment on the actual quality of anyone's care. And the reason is this. I didn't see the patient the day before. 
what I have to assume is that my partner or anybody else, some from another hospital, I don't care where they're from, I assume they had the same goal in mind as I do, which is making you better. I think it's very hard to comment, for example, on a child's abdomen, what it looked like yesterday. How are you going to say the care was good or bad? And what I try and do is get people to focus on where do we go from here? Let's do this now. Because if you start hemming and hawing about somebody else's care, then you're the nidus for the lawsuit. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen it in depositions where they say, well, Dr. So-and-so said, you should have taken them to the operating room to wash out the wound, or you should have done X, Y, or Z. You know what? If you're not there, that's just pure speculation. You have no idea what should have been done the day before. Well, Gregory, I think those are excellent points. The next one is this listener wants to hear more regarding the liability for consultant recommendations. Specifically, so you call a consultant and they give you a set of recommendations and they say, look, this is the standard. This is what we all do. All you all just say that you should do this. And what liability risk are you at if you say, well, I don't know if that's true. He told me to give them Bactrim for the Bactrim-resistant bug and put them on the floor. But he said everybody in my specialty does that. It's fine. So is that okay? If they say this is the standard of care, do we have to believe them? Does that hold up in court? Well, you're not required to know every aspect of every other specialist practice. You can't. But then again, you have common sense on your side as well. You can always document this is the advice per doctor so-and-so, and and if it seems reasonable to you, go along with it. I'll tell you the number of times I've called consultants, for example, in oncology about one of their patients who was in with a fever, and I'll say, which gorillacillin are you starting them on this week? And he'll say, well, these are the one or two that we're doing at this moment in time. I don't go back and check that literature. I just go ahead and start it, and I think that I'm reasonably covered under that because Who is supposed to know what to do? It's not like he's recommending that I cut their head off or that I do some major procedure or that I don't do those things which are usual and customary. But with a fine point like that, I think you have an absolute right to depend on the specialist. For example, if the urologist tells me, flush the bladder, you know, they come in with clots after a procedure. I flush the bladder, put in a catheter and send them home. That's his recommendation, and they'll see them in the morning sort of thing. I think I have a perfect right to depend on his knowledge and judgment in that area. I've never actually seen that case. In 2,000 cases, if I haven't seen one, it can't be a very common problem. Yeah, although I made a sort of silly one. I can see where somebody comes in with ITP or something like that, and their platelet count's 10 or 5, and I'm like, I want to give them platelets, and they say, no, no, don't give them platelets. They'll be fine. We see this all the time. Just stick them up on the floor. So I can see it comes up a lot, and we all do it. We all rely on our consultants to give us that information. It was just interesting for you to say it's not something you've seen very often, because I would think that if something did go bad, they'd say, that's not what I told the immense physician. So as always, document well. Put something down there. And if they really want something that I don't usually and customarily do, I'm going to make a note about that in my discussion. Now, we usually don't talk about everything, but you've raised an interesting point. In hematology, there's no way I can keep up with exactly what they're doing every week in that special. And it does change. And somebody says, I want factor 7A, this, that, another thing. And we don't have it in the hospital. I mean, things like that do come up. But I think, in general, 
What does common sense tell you about most of what you do? Here's where you'll have more trouble. Is in the relationship when they've told you to do things when they get up on the floor, and now there's a three and four hour delay. Henry's law is still, if you do it in the next three hours, (laughs) do it from the emergency department. Because crap happens. And I've got some cases working on right now which have to do with the delay between what the specialist recommended and when it was actually done as the patient went into the hospital. I think that's a much bigger issue than did they pick out the right gorillacillin of the week to give this patient. I got another one. Yes, sir. This actually comes from EM Rep, but it's really a risk management issue that I think we need to talk about on uh, Risk Management Monthly. And so I just had this physician write in after we did a little thing on courtesy care that Al Sacchetti did. So Al talked about you know how he looks after some of the nurses and doctors and gives them prescriptions. And this physician wrote in describing a very bad situation where they gave a controlled substance to a family member and they got into very big trouble. And he said, look, don't be ignorant about this. This is a very dangerous circumstance. When you're giving controlled substances, they have to be given for a specific medical condition and just sort of handing over controlled substances without a chart without a real reason can get you into trouble. So handing out benzos to the nurses that are having difficulty sleeping on their flight to Australia may get you into a lot of trouble and you need to understand that you have to have a chart and a legitimate reason to be giving this. You're not the candy man. Are you kidding? This is a huge problem. I mean, we all have family members who want things and you need to be extremely careful about this. And from an insurance standpoint, this is the law No chart, no insurance. I'm sorry if I'm running an insurance company and you don't have a documentable record that I could defend the care, I'm not giving you insurance coverage. I don't care whether you charge them. I couldn't care less about the money arrangements, but I'm not going to defend as the insurance carrier anyone who doesn't have a record that I can use to defend it. You say, well, my friend wouldn't sue me. No, but when you drop dead, their wife would or their cousin would, always have a record if you're going to put your license on the line. And by the way, if you're treating nurses, anybody else in the hospital, just have them make a chart. And I'll tell them right up front, if there's a copay that's a problem or something like that, we'll work on it. You want me to see you. Do me the favor of being able to protect myself. Let me tell you, the worst thing you can do is give somebody a prescription for somebody you haven't seen. And I've got that case or a doctor had written a prescription because the nurse said, my kid's at home, I think he's got an ear infection again. Well, it wasn't just an ear infection. And I don't think oral amoxicillin is the treatment for meningitis, is it, Rick? I don't think so. And so he'd written a prescription for a kid he had not seen. I think that's crazy. It's bad medical care, and it's bad medical legal care for yourself. Well, all of these have this underlying concept of good faith medical evaluation, whether history, physical. Doctors give medications out over the phone all of the time, generally to patients that they know. But, you know, when they start talking about family members and those kinds of things, there is all of this stuff written about the ethical aspects of that. AMA has come out and basically has said in just so many terms that you ought not be treating your family members. It's okay if there's a one time, you know, the kid has an ear infection and you can, but the idea of ongoing treatment is an issue. The state law is what governs a lot of this stuff. If you're in the state of Michigan, you decide to script somebody. If it requires a DEA number on that script, they better not have the same last name or a connection with you because you have violated 
the state law. And there's federal narcotics laws that are imposed on top of that. So as soon as you need a DEA number, you should be pretty damn careful and understand what they require. And I don't know, I think that's probably good judgment on the part of the DEA and the state, state pharmacy laws, that that doesn't happen. So you can stratify, this is how I've always done it, and so you tell me if I'm wrong, I've always stratified by I'm giving a benign drug to my wife like Keflex for UTI or something like that, seen very differently than I'm giving her Vicodin every week for her migraine. I wouldn't (laughs) do it one day, Chief. Even to myself, I've prescribed to myself, and we probably all have, a little rash here or something, I prescribe myself stuff, but I always do it, and I'm very anxious about it because I really wasn't sure of what the law is. Well, you know, there was a survey that I read over in the process of going through this that basically said that residents really get very little instructions on the rules and regulations about prescribing things. And actually, there have been a couple of papers looking at what residents do. And one of the things that is a recurring theme is they say, listen, we were never told about these rules. One of the rules that you absolutely must know is if it requires a triplicate or a controlled substance or something like that, you can't prescribe it for yourself. And if you prescribe it for a family member, depending on what state you're in, you might get into trouble with that because some of the state laws are worse than the federal laws. The federal law basically says under federal rules, a controlled substance prescription is valid only if it is issued for a legitimate medical purpose by a practitioner acting in the usual course of sound medical practice. And that is extrapolated to mean history, physical record is conducted. Well, we're sitting in Los Angeles at this moment. All of these medical marijuana clinics, which are being challenged, all have to do with one thing. Did they actually practice medicine, or are they just places where you get a script? Because I forget how many undercover buys they did. The California State Police probably did 800 buys in this study. And did anybody check their heart, their lungs, their past medical history, anything? No, they walked in and said, you know, I got a little back pain. Okay, here's a script for you. You know what? That's not what the medical marijuana law was set up to cover, and this is a clear abuse of the prescribing power. You know, one of the things that they pointed out is that in some states, the state law is substantially more aggressive than the federal law. It is. It's not contestable that you're not allowed to prescribe controlled substances for yourself. That's a given at you know, all 50 states. But I think in Massachusetts, you're not allowed to prescribe for your family members either. Some of them are really quite rigorous about this. Although there is all this wiggle room that is put in there regarding the ethics of these kinds of things with regards to treating yourself or you're treating family members over a protracted period of time versus a short period of time, those kinds of things. Yeah, but to the thousand people who are listening here, Our job is to put you in the most advantageous position. We can never say anything 100%. But if you're thinking about this long term, just don't get in the habit of writing prescriptions for people who you don't have a chart, you haven't done a record. Don't get into the habit of writing for family members. You know what? They deserve to have a doctor. Take a look at them. And I think that we need to kind of get back to basics here. Well, the fellow who wrote this basically made it clear that if they come in to investigate your office for some reason related to the prescription of controlled substances for a patient, 
they basically are entitled to look at everything that you do with regard to this practice. And maybe what you did for that patient was just fine, but they can then find out that you are also prescribing for yourself or others in your family. And then this is the kind of idea of when Medicare comes in to do an EMTALA audit. It's like all things are on the table, all things, not just this one case. Yep. Agree. I hope that's answered the question. All right. Wine of the month. Again, I tend to get assaulted at cocktail parties and things associated with the American College. Not about anything we've said in this program except wine of the month. And Mel has a lot of people who support him on this. Greg, give us something volume, cheap, gets me drunk, and my family will put up with it. We've got one this month, and uh, we'll discuss the other one next month. And that is the Blended California Wines. Now, Jerry Hoffman can shut off his recording right now because he doesn't want to hear about blended wines. And for those of you who are true aficionados, heaven forbid we would have any wine which wasn't 51% of a particular varietal, a Cabernet Sauvignon, so to speak. But there are plenty of good wines in California which are the work of blending three or four different wines. And I'm pointing out today from the Cliff Family Winery, 2009. The Cliff Fanny Winery is located in Mendocino and Lodi counties in California. They have one called the Climber, C-L-I-M-B-E-R. 2009. This sells for 12 bucks a bottle, and I was served it probably, oh, within the last two weeks, and it's scrumptious. This is really good at it. Twelve bucks a bottle. Mel, you'd buy it at twelve bucks. I would buy it at twelve, but I always thought blended wines was when you'd had a glass of beer and there was a bit of beer left, and then you put your wine on the top. <laughs> oh God, God, God <laughs> help me! To do that? You know, I'd like to apologize <laughs> to all of our listeners for Mel. Rick, mm-hmm. any comments about the wine? I know nothing about wine. Okay, so this is Greg Henry, Mel Herbert, Rick Bucata, saying goodbye for Risk Management Monthly.